0: And do not covet his anything. So this is a comprehensive, conclusive statement. Coveting can come in almost any form. It doesn't have to be things or possessions. It may be physical. You may covet your neighbor's waistline. It may be, uh, it may be relational. You may covet your neighbor's spouse. You know, your neighbor's spouse brings her flowers, and your spouse forgets your birthday. Right, you may covet your neighbor's spouse. It might be relational. You may covet your neighbor's kids. You know, your your kids are are nerds and they're always playing video games, and his kids are out there on the football team. Ooh, I wish I had their kids. You may covet covet your neighbor's uh, boyfriend. You know, you and your friend, you're both single, and then he gets married. He gets a boyfriend. He gets married, and suddenly, you're coveting that person's relational status. Did I mess up there? Sorry. <laughs> you could cover, covet your neighbor's gifts, and I, and I feel like this a lot. One of the things I like to do is listen to sermons online, and so I'm listening to these sermons online. I want to get better, you know, and so I'm listening to all these great, you know, pastors of big churches, and oftentimes I start, I start thinking, why can't I preach like that? I know you all think I'm great, but... <laughs> Why, why can't I preach like that? Why does he get to preach like that? Why can't I have that knowledge? Why can't I have that ability? You could cover, covet your neighbor's gifts. You could covet your neighbor's achievement, right? You're, you started a business. Yours is slow going. Your neighbor's business begins to explode. And so you're always looking over there and saying, why is his business taking off, and what's wrong with mine? You could covet your neighbor's anything. This is not just about materialism or greed. This is about anything at all. And what that means is that probably most of us in this room, if we think about it, are guilty of being covetous. And usually it's your neighbor. Notice the word neighbor here is here three times. Uh, Usually you covet something that is in your proximity, right? I don't uh, covet Katy Perry's voice. I'm not a singer. I could care less, right? But I might covet the pastor down the street, right? He's, he's in my same profession. There's proximity there. I don't covet uh, Michael Jordan's basketball skills, right? I'm short. I'll never be that good. But I might covet that person who gets a raise in my office building, right? You usually covet people that are they're in your same income bracket. Maybe they're in your own neighborhood. Maybe they're in your own profession. So this is what coveting is. It is a hankering It's a yearning, it's a craving for something that belongs to somebody else. Do you feel it? Well, you say, I don't know if I feel it. Uh, How do I know if I'm struggling with this? How do I know that I have envy and covetousness? How do I know that I am am suffering from this disease? Well, let me give you some symptoms. Let me uh, give you some marks of covetousness. Let me show you how this shows up in your life. Because covetousness sometimes, uh, like greed, can be hard to see in the mirror. So, how do you know that you are struggling with it? How do you know that you have this disease in your own heart? What are some symptoms of coveting? Let me give you a few. A covetousness first begins with comparison. You compare your life to others. If you are somebody who is constantly measuring your life against another's, you're probably struggling with covetousness. Uh, coveting grows in the soil of comparison. Right? And so you're always looking around and you're saying, well, look at their business, look at their spouse, look at their income bracket, look at their gifts, look at their achievement. Right? If you're always measuring and comparing and looking at your life next to somebody else's, you're probably struggling with being covetous. Uh, a great example of this is in the Old Testament. With, um, there's an Old Testament king named King Saul. And King Saul was incredibly uh, successful himself. By any standard, uh, King Saul was uh, enormously successful. He had won many, many battles. You know, he's very popular in Israel. But then there was this young uh, uh, military general named David. And David began to rise up through the ranks and began to experience a, a measure of success himself until finally he began to surpass the popularity of Saul. And after one of David's great battles it says that the women lined the street. I love this. The women lined the street with their tambourines and they sang a song. It became one of the top 10 hits in Israel. <laughs> and how did the song go? It said Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his 10,000s, ten tens of thousands. And then the scripture says that Saul began to be angry. But Saul, you you've slain your thousands. But Saul, you're, you're enormously popular. It doesn't matter because although Saul was good, David was better. And that's where covetousness comes from. When you begin to compare your life with somebody else, you start measuring your life against another's. And, and you begin to see this even when you, uh, even with small children. Uh, a good place to see coveting is in the nursery, full of toddries, toddlers. You can go out there in the hallway and see it. When does a child become interested in a toy? When when another child has it, right, when he sees it in the hands of another child. You see, it's comparison. You're happy with what you have until you see that somebody else has more. Here's another quote in your bulletin. You can pull it out. This is about pride, but pride is connected to being covetous. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer, cleverer, or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud—the pleasure of being, whoops, of being above the rest. Once the el- listen to this, once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. So, it's, you, you, what is a symptom of this? You're always looking at your life in, comparing to, in comparison to somebody else's life. Like, right, I've got this much money, but they have more, and it makes you covetous. It makes you envious. And this is why um, one of the places where you see covetous most often is in social media. Uh, the greenhouse of covetousness is Facebook, because this is where you compare. You know, around Lent, you know, as a pastor, there are many people who said, on Lent, I gave up Facebook. I stopped looking at it. And I, and I heard this, so I wrote it down because I heard it so often, around Lent. Uh, People said, uh, I gave up Facebook for Lent, and I realized I'm happier without it. Right? It's not Facebook that's the problem. It's your covetousness. You're comparing your life to theirs, or other things like this. Pinterest makes me hate my house, (laughs) or maybe like this. I stopped following a friend on Instagram, and now that I don't see nonstop snapshots of her perfect life, I like her better. Right, so are you comparing your life with somebody else's? Are you scrolling through Facebook and admiring a little bit too much, obsessing a little bit too much about how this person got this and that person has that, and the other person has more money than you do? Comparison. Well, let me give you another symptom of uh, covetousness. Another one is resentment at the blessings of others. Right, you know you're covetous, covetous or envious When you begin to dislike somebody because of what they have. They're not mean. They did nothing to you. Their greatest crime is having what you want. You begin to resent people because of what they have. And you actually begin to become happy when they fail. (laughs) There's this great little word. Maybe you've heard it before. It's schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, a little German word. Scha- Can we all say that? Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. What is Schadenfreude? It's the delight in another person's failure or defeat. You might not know that word, but you know the emotion, and now you're saying, that's what I've been feeling all this time. Schadenfreude. You know, somebody else, is, they have the perfect child, and then they learn that that child has has gotten an alcohol addiction, and suddenly you're like, yes. You would never say that out loud, but it goes on. We hate to admit it. Schadenfreude. Uh, One old writer, one old philosopher put it this way. He said, in the misfortune of our best friends, we find something that is not displeasing to us. I had a best friend in college, in seminary, and this guy, he was smart, you know, we're, you know, of course I'm incredibly smart, and so I loved him right off the bat. Um, just kidding. But he was smarter than I was. And it became very evident, because we took a lot of classes together, he was smarter than me. But I thought, at least I'm m- more likable than him. But then actually, he became very, very popular. He was uh, initiated into one of these secret societies, you know, and into this club. He was very popular. But I thought, at least I can play music better than him. Nope. And he's good at chess. Some of you think, chess? That's so lame. Who cares? But I cared. And you know what? It threatened our friendship. Because he was so much better. Right? And I was, I was okay. You know, I was okay, but he was better. And so I could hardly stand to be around him. And I had to get over that. Right? Resentment is a, is a symptom of covetousness. Right? Cain and Abel, you remember that age-old story of Cain and Abel? He coveted his brother's blessing from God, and it resulted in a murder. Uh, Anita and I used to watch these CSI uh, shows on television. And there was one CSI show I remember. It was this this guy, he had a best friend, and, and they were best friends, but then he began to covet his best friend's spouse. And it resulted in murder. He killed his best friend. And they caught this man, they brought him in prison, they were, and they were interviewing him for the show, and they said, how did, it, how did you murder this man? He says, well, I remember going into his office, he was sitting there at his desk, and, he, and when I walked in, he looked at me and said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm going to kill you. He says, why are you going to kill me? And he says, you have what I want. Right, this is where hatred comes from, and resentment. And so comparison, resentment, here's a final uh, symptom of, of covetousness, a feeling of dejection and sorrow. A feeling of dejection and sorrow. Uh, Thomas Aquinas even defines covetousness this way. He said, covetousness is the sadness at goods possessed by another. Joseph uh, Epstein wrote a great book on the seven deadly sins, and one of them is envy or covetousness. And this is what he says about envy. He says, Of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. Every other has at least its fleeting joys gluttony and lust, even sloth has its pleasures. But envy is nothing to be jealous of. Envy sucks the joy out of our lives. See, it's a sorrow. And what it is, is that you cannot recognize, when you're envious of somebody else, when you're coveting, you don't recognize the blessings that God's given you. Right? You ignore them, you're blind to those things. I remember sitting with one of my friends who was suffering from, he was depressed and he was sad. and, And he was sitting there and he looked at me and he says, Man, I have no friends and nobody likes me. I have no friends and nobody likes me. And I was sitting there, I'm sitting right here with you. What am I, chopped liver? Right, but this is what covetousness does. You, you don't, you, you're blind to the obvious blessings in your own life that are right under your nose. You don't see them. You don't see why you fell in love with your husband because you're hankering after somebody else's. You don't see the blessing of your own gifts, what God has given you, because you're hankering after somebody else's gifts. And you don't see the, the blessings, the, the house and the car and all the things that God has given you under your own nose because you don't see them. You're too busy looking at somebody else's life and wanting it. And so there's a sorrow. I gave up Facebook for Lent, and I'm happier without it. Sadness at the goods possessed by another. This is self-pity. We're talking about self-pity here. When you're covetous, you begin to pity your own life, your own state. And this is where it leaves you. Now, so there's the symptoms. So we've seen, what is it? It's the, it's, the, it's the obsessing after something that belongs to somebody else. What are the symptoms? Comparison, resentment, and sorrow. I mean, diagnose your own life. Look in your own life. Do you see it? Comparison. What are they doing? What's going on in their life? Resentment. Oh, I hate her. She's so pretty. I hate her. And Sorrow. I hate my life. I don't have anything good. Well, let's, what's the cure? This is the third point. What's the cure of covetousness? Because diagnosis is not enough. Right? It's, it's not enough to just simply realize, okay, we all struggle with this. This is a big problem for all of us. I mean, what is the way out? This is one of the Ten Commandments. This is a huge deal. This is one of the, the ways that keeps you from having a good life. How do you get out of this envy? How do you get out of this comparison? How do you get out of this resentment? How do, how do we, what's the cure for this? And the way we find the cure is by looking at the root of it. You see, there is a, there is a sickness beneath the sickness. There's something underneath covetousness that gives it its power. What is that? Right? There, there, it's, there are roots that are, that are grabbing onto it. And so uh, this is, what is underneath this coveting thing? Why do we covet? And the answer to that question is, we covet when we look for something in this world to satisfy us other than God. You covet when you begin trusting in a spouse other than God relying on a spouse other than God. You covet when you rely in possessions instead of God. You covet when you are trusting in, relying upon, finding satisfaction and achievement other than God. Anytime you find something else to give you satisfaction instead of the living God, you're gonna begin to covet. So in other words, you need to look at your, what do you covet? Are you somebody who covets your, somebody else's spouse? Maybe romance is your God. Are you somebody who covets somebody else's achievement? Maybe success is your God. Are you somebody who envies somebody else's family or children? Maybe family is your God. You see, envy and covetousness lead you to the sin beneath the sin idolatry. And you know what this means? This means that the Ten Commandment circles back to the First Commandment. What is the First Commandment? Do not have any other gods before me. What is the second commandment? No graven images. And then here at the very end, God circles back to the beginning. And this is why in the New Testament, Paul says, Avoid covetousness, which is idolatry. Right? So you got to go underneath and say, What is it that I covet? Perhaps that thing has become your god. And that's why you're obsessing over it in somebody else's life. Well, What's the cure then? What, what, what do we do? Well, if, if this is the, your problem, if this is what's going on in your life, what do you need to do? You need to transfer your trust. You need to realize I'm trusting in success or I'm trusting in romance. You need to take your trust out of that thing, take your, your search for satisfaction out of that thing and put it in God instead need to start looking for your satisfaction in God. He's the only one who could fulfill your need. There's a great story in the Jesus confronts a woman at the well. Do you remember this? And this is a woman that I think probably struggled with covetousness. She had five husbands. She always thought, Oh, I, I need that man. No, I need that man. No, I need that man. And the one she was living with now wasn't her husband. And when Jesus comes to her, what does he say? He says, look, you've been looking for living water and all these other things, and it's put you on a search. He says, what you're looking for is standing right in front of you. I am the living water. The only one who can satisfy your thirst, the obsession that that you have for everybody else's stuff, is the living God. God is the living water. And you need to suck all of your joy and all of your life out of him. And when you put him at the center of your life, then a spouse is just a spouse, and money is just money, and success is just success. They're not God anymore. Transfer your trust. I I brought this book up here because I wanted to read something, which is kind of a little picture of what it might look like when you finally transfer your trust. It's a story. And I'm going to end on this, and I'll be done. It's a story of a professor at Wheaton College. His name was Dr. Gilbert Bilzi- Bilzikian. and that's hard to say, so I'll just call him Dr. B. And so he tells a story where he says uh, he, uh, he used to walk from his house in Wheaton house to his house from his house to Wheaton College where he worked. And one day, while he was on his way to the college he noticed a neighbor had put a sign out in front of his door. It was beautiful, very artistic, a creative sign, bearing the street name and the address on it. Dr. B, born in France, had always loved beauty. Just walking past the sign gave him great pleasure. Such was its beauty. He found that for the rest of the day, he couldn't stop thinking about it. So he's obsessed with the sign. The next day, when he left his house, that little voice inside his head said, I'm actually kind of looking forward to seeing that sign. Sure enough, he, as he walked past the sign, Dr. B felt that same surge of admiration. He experienced the previous day. This is a beautiful work of art, he exclaimed to himself. This happened every day. He found himself eagerly anticipating walking past that sign and admiring its beauty. Until one day, the strangest thing happened. As he walked past that house and saw the sign, this time the voice inside his head said to him, Why should your neighbor have that sign, as, a be- as beautiful as-, as it is, and not you? Think how much joy it would give you to possess something of such beauty, and have the whole neighborhood see it and know it belongs to you. You ought to have that. You must have that. If that wasn't enough, another particular thing happened. Walking past his neighbor's house, Did not bring him joy anymore. Now it just troubled him. Now every time he saw the sign, it was a reminder of what he did not have and might never have. He knew it would be expensive to buy such a sign, and as a teacher, he did not make very much money, and he and his wife were putting uh, children through school, and even if he had the money, he knew his wife would not want to spend the money on the sign. He continued walking past the sign and feeling resentful that he could not have one like it until eventually one day he passed a sign and another voice inside his head said this. Dr. B, it was the voice of God, even God called him Dr. B. <laughs> Dr. B it began, couldn't you enjoy that sign without owning it? Couldn't you be happy for the guy who has it? Couldn't you be happy that people get to see it? Couldn't you admire it Without torturing yourself over how to possess it. Then he says, Could you admire without having to acquire? And that's what the voice said, and this is what he did. He just agreed with that thought. And from that day forward, he walked past that sign and said to himself, I'll just admire without the need to acquire. How do you do that? How do you just admire? Hey, it's just a house. I'd like to buy that house someday. It's just a house without this obsession. How do you do that? How do you admire without the need to acquire? You need to be looking for your satisfaction in God. He alone will meet your need. And stuff never will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this This passage, Lord, this final commandment about coveting, which really is about idolatry, it's a commandment that tells us that we are always uh, replacing you with these things that won't satisfy our needs, and so therefore we covet and we envy. Lord, this morning we want to say to ourselves and in our minds that you alone satisfy our needs. And Lord, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day with you than a thousand things in this world. God, we need you. And we thank you for sending Jesus the living water to satisfy our souls. And God, I pray that we could be people that are satisfied so much that we could actually rejoice at the blessings of others, that we could be thankful for the things in our own lives. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.